reason we disagree is I'm looking at this differently. This person over here is looking at it differently. We think we see the same movie, but we're actually watching entirely different movies. It's, it's, a, it's a wonder we agree as much as we do. It's all in here. All of your happiness and all of your sadness, all of your misery and all of your joy and your freedom is behind your forehead and between your ears. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning and welcome to today's episode of Wisdom of the Soul, presented by the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We're here live every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock California time. It's a free Zoom class, and if you uh, stumble across this, maybe on YouTube or as a uh, audio podcast, and would like the benefit of the entire class every week, in other words, it includes the group meditation and uh, the Q&A section near the end. And would like to join us live. All you need is the newsletter. It has the link, has the show notes each week. And if you just go to michaelbenner.com, you'll see a button that says newsletter request. First name and an email and wham bam, there you go. You got all the information you need. If Sunday morning's not good for you, Again, 11 a.m. California time, wherever in the world you may be. We do post the full class to YouTube and, as they say, an edited version as an audio podcast, all searchable by the words Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, whether it's Google or your YouTube search or your podcast search, Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Looking forward to today's class. I, you know, the truth is I look forward to all of these classes. And I think we're at about 70. I think this may be 70 or 71. It's just hard to believe that we've done that many and that uh, uh, time continues to race forward and never get used to that. But uh, the idea of love as consciousness is such a critical and important bridge between traditional religion, particularly in the West, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the so-called monotheistic religions or uh, Abrahamic religions that sort of unfold from each other. Christianity is really a, a sect of Judaism, right? Christ was a Jew, a rabbi, arguably. And then out of that came the Quran 500 years later. And um, they say the Prophet Muhammad could not read nor write. And so the Quran was fully realized, but it contains references to the uh, Hebrew Bible, 
which are referenced in the New Testament, so-called. So they sort of unfold from each other. And that's monotheism. And it really rests on an idea that there's one God, but that that God is separate and distinct and living outside its creation. You know, the boss upstairs, you'll hear people talk about, or the man upstairs, or um, up there and then down there, you know, heaven and hell, all being these separated locations in space. And the presumption is that we appear to be separate in these forms, these bodies, and that everything else appears to be separate, at least as solids. You know, there are liquid states and gaseous states where it's not so clear. But it's all based on the idea of atoms and tiny particles and and material and mass and that that's the reality of things is the physical dense stuff, the, the elements of the periodic table. So it's understandable really that religious or spiritually oriented people would think of their creator as separate and distinct. Um, there is an understanding in all three of these religions of spirit as being part of the Trinity, at least in Christianity, you have a Trinitarian view where the third element of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, imbues and, and permeates reality and is everywhere equally present. But most people are still thinking in terms of God as a separate being and uh, you know, it was portrayed on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, way out there living on a cloud, reaching out with his finger from some other place. What's curious about Eastern philosophy is that it's mon it's not monotheistic, it's monistic. Instead of believing in monotheism, they believe in monism. And monism unifies all the Eastern philosophies, and it's a it's a very different view. There's nothing separate in monism. And so what is referred to as love, that unifying spirit, that energy, in the Abrahamic or the monotheistic religions is referred to as consciousness in the Eastern religions and philosophies, really. There are the Vedas that go back 4,000 years or more that really predate the religions that we think of as or, or label as Hinduism or uh, something of Buddhism as a religion that's debatable. Many people practice it as a religion, but Buddha is not God and nobody worships Buddha. They seek to become Buddha-like. Imagine if a Christian, instead of worshiping Christ, sought to become Christ-like, then we'd have a better understanding of the view in the East. But love as consciousness, that's a breakthrough. When you begin to realize that consciousness, which is awareness, which is understanding, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on what are some synonyms for consciousness how else can we how do we teach what's called the hard problem of consciousness what does it even mean is it small c consciousness 
to be conscious of this, but not conscious of that? Or is it capital C consciousness, which is a totality of awareness, or capital A awareness, the cumulative awareness that would exist even if there were nothing to be conscious of? You see? Somewhat like the way a sleeping person is conscious even though they're unconscious. <laughs> you know, the word has multiple meanings. You say, well, he's not awake, he's not conscious, he's asleep or she's asleep. But they're dreaming and they're, they're breathing and their heart is beating. And when they wake up, they may even remember some of those dreams. And so we're conscious on some level. Uh, we hear the alarm clock if it goes off. We can program ourselves to wake up at any time we wish just by holding that thought in our minds as we fall asleep. So even when we're unconscious in sleep, we are conscious on some level. And Eastern philosophy has multiple states or levels of consciousness, even beyond uh, the rum states of dreaming is deep non-dream sleep. And even beyond that, this idea of consciousness is fundamental. And so I want to talk about consciousness is fundamental to all things. The cause, the primal cause, the prime mover behind all things. And how it leads to the absence of self, of individual, or of otherness, non-duality, which Buddhists call emptiness. When you hear a Buddhist talk about emptiness, what is it empty of? Right? What it's empty of is a sense of self, a reality of things according to not only Eastern philosophy, but now quantum physics is making this pretty self-evident. That separation is an illusion that's created by the mind, is a function of our senses, our ability to reach out and touch things and say, oh, that's hard, that's sharp, that's soft, that's velvety, or to see with our eyes or hear with our ears to smell and taste even subtle senses like uh, gaze detection how do you know when somebody's staring at you and you have that funny feeling and you turn around and sure enough somebody was staring at you <laughs> and scientists have found particular neurons that are specialized in their function to detect that and ESP itself, all of this is indicating that we're all part of one thing. So it's not just one God living outside its creation, but just no separation, no individuality. And it's in that understanding that you can see how consciousness and love are the same thing. That's what I want to talk about today. We'll do our opening meditation and, and, and then jump into that. Is not love a feeling that there is no separation. Think of times that you have fallen in love or lived in, uh, in love, like when the relationship is new and sort of heady and there is no other. There's a feeling when you're together. Someone once said love is not so much a feeling that comes from others, but the way we feel when we're with others. 
So you say to someone, I love you, what you're saying is, I love the way I feel when you're around, or when I even think about you. And what is that feeling? It's a feeling of losing yourself and joining something much bigger, uh, something that feels quite blissful and ecstatic. And uh, it's the separation that's the problem, the illusion of the separation, and that's the birth of all fear. And that's the only thing that separates us from love, is fear. So in the last few classes, we've talked about fear, we've talked about anger, we've talked about grudges. Now we're going to talk about love as consciousness and visit these terms non-duality and the Buddhist concept of, of emptiness and revisit even the definition of the word one because even that word has multiple definitions. Do we mean this one as opposed to that one? Well, this one is not that one. That one's red, this one's blue. Or the one meaning the whole kit and caboodle, the whole, the whole thing. That's what we're gonna play with today, love as consciousness. All this talk in the Eastern religion about being more conscious, higher consciousness, elevated consciousness, expanded consciousness. And then in Western religions, it's all love. Well, what if they're the same thing? Indeed, that's the premise. And uh, it's all awareness. So fundamental. It's the, the one concept you just cannot get behind. And that's why we meditate. That's what a meditation is, is being aware of being aware. Because as you look at awareness, as you notice what you notice, we need to go slow around this, <laughs> right? As you notice what you notice and notice that you are aware and that you have this capacity of awareness behind thoughts, behind feelings, behind behavior, a variable, how aware are you? More or less aware, depending on the situation. We can go from being aware of ourselves as awareness to being that awareness. I'm aware that I am aware of being aware, and then I understand I am that awareness. And when you identify as awareness, you can remind yourself throughout the day, wait a minute, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a victim, I'm not a target. I'm not an effect of the world being done to me, except when I view it that way. And then like some self-fulfilling prophecy, well, if you see yourself as a target, you will be a target, obviously. But if you understand that this whole reality you see out here is being assembled in your head, you can take one step back or rise above it just a little bit and watch it happen and say, well, the reason we disagree is I'm looking at this differently. This person over here is looking at it differently. We think we see the same movie, but we're actually watching entirely different movies. It's, it's, a, it's a wonder we agree as much as we do. It's all in here. All of your happiness and all of your sadness, all of your misery and all of your joy and your freedom is behind your forehead in between your ears. 
Let's do a meditation. Close your eyes if you would. Get comfortable on the furniture. And three, his eyes open, wide awake, back in the room, feeling fine. Open your eyes now, wide awake, back in the room, with a full memory and deep understanding. And take a nice big breath or two, just... And a big, maybe, sigh. Some stretching. <laughs> Good. Welcome back. So, I hope that has some relevance for you and some impact. The beautiful thing about it is you can spend decades, literally, reflecting on this, and it always feels new. How it feels to be in love. As ineffable, as indescribable as love is, <laughs> we all know the feeling. The delight, the joy, the bliss of love is what motivates everything. Psychologists can say what they want about the avoidance of pain or um, survival, fight or flight, and other motives, like the drive to create family, the, the loyalty that we have toward family, which is obviously love-based, but there's a lot of fear mixed in with it, right? When we move into the way we live, it's, it's hard to hold those frequencies, those higher frequencies of love, because the absence of love is fear. So if love is awareness, then fear is the lack of awareness. Bingo. That's what fear is. I said it last week and the week before. It's the core principle of my book, Fearless Intelligence, that fear has nothing to do with danger. <laughs> nothing at all. Fear is a feeling of not understanding, of being unaware. It's the antithesis of love, which is awareness. Problem is, I can't say fear is unawareness, therefore it is unconsciousness, because <laughs> the word consciousness has these multiple meanings. If I said fear is being unconscious, you would say, well, that's not true. How could I? How could I know I'm afraid? How could I feel afraid if I were unconscious? I'm, I'm conscious, I'm awake. Well, it's a different level of consciousness. I mean, think of it. At least three basic meanings of consciousness are I'm awake or asleep. Or sleep, I guess, would include unconscious, would include comatose, right? Some deep, deep level of unconsciousness. So there's awake or asleep or unconscious in that sense. There's um, the consciousness of values and ethics and morality. Someone once asked me on the radio many, many years ago, caught me off guard, and uh, I guess that's why I remember it, because it really hit me in the forehead like, bing. 
came right out of the blue and this caller said, Hey, Michael, what do you think is the difference between consciousness and intelligence? And, whew, bang, you're, I'm, I'm, you're on the radio, right? You don't have time to think it through or to say, well, let me, there was no Google then. Let me go to the library and get back to you in a week or two. You got to come up with something. And I thought it was such a great question, and I didn't know really what to say. And suddenly it just came to me as an example, and and I, I've always liked it. I said, well, for example, to build a nuclear weapon, you would have to be very intelligent. It takes a lot of intelligence to build a nuclear weapon, but a conscious person would never do it. This movie Oppenheimer now is causing people to question in a wonderful way this madness of mutually assured destruction even spells mad mutually assured mad destruction it's just insane and there is no defense other than the idea that here's a weapon you cannot use because if you use it everybody dies well, that's something we could do without, don't you think? So consciousness carries with it another definition of values or ethics or morality of, of virtue. And then there's this third idea, and there's probably more definitions or connotations of the word that have to do with love. But any time you think of Eastern religion and the emphasis on consciousness, or something, say, somebody talking about, yeah, I, was, I joined a consciousness-raising group, right? I became a feminist, and it raised my consciousness. I joined a uh, LGBTQI, I've lost track of the alphabet, uh, kind of a support group, and... It elevated my awareness, raised my consciousness. I understood better, more, you see. Consciousness raising or awareness expanding. And when you get into these groups, like when I was in college, it could be an anti-war group or a civil rights organization or, or feminism, you quickly realize that they're part of a larger overarching group of civil liberties. They're all really different aspects of one thing, which is about freedom and responsibility and accepting responsibility for things you did not cause, which is a tough lesson. We've touched on this only briefly in the past and I'd like to talk about it more in the future. What does it mean to be responsible for circumstances you did not cause? I think that's what fuels activism. So suddenly you, you're you an avid anti-war activist and you see a connection to the environment and you go, wait a minute, this is connected to global warming and this is connected to homophobia and this is connected to the oppression of women and misogyny and patriarchy and you start to zoom out or elevate your perspective and say, well... This is all a function of the parts fighting other parts. 
that's an important way of talking about what's happening in the in the United States and to a large extent the world right now is we have leaders politicians and others who find a value they find power and money in turning us against each other we've always had our differences and celebrated our differences but rarely have we said the enemy is within we we did have a civil war because a big part of the country thought it was okay to own other human beings bondage slavery and their economy became so dependent on that and the lifestyle of sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair with a mint julep watching other people bring in your crops was something they didn't want to give up and racism now is largely continuing as a uh, a way of refusing to accept the horror of slavery white supremacy is about demeaning people of color as a way of dealing with the guilt of slavery rather than just accepting what a horror it was. Slavery was a horror on the level of the genocide of indigenous people and uh, Hitler's Holocaust and the Armenian Holocaust and pogroms around the world, Chinese and Japanese and man's inhumanity to man. Beware of those who use fear to turn us against each other, whoever that other is. Right? We're very binary. Remember that temptation to go to the binary. If Putin's war in Ukraine upsets you, don't let it spill over to a hatred or a fear of the Russian people. They're just as brainwashed as Americans. There are no good wars, there are no good bullets, there are no good bombs. Very easy. It's like somebody said to me the other day, Michael, can you tell me why the progressive left is suddenly in favor of war? Given this Russia-Ukraine thing, I said, yeah, it's totally understandable. But we need to go beyond the right of Ukraine to defend itself and the fact that we're supplying the bullets and the bombs, we're paying for that war. We see the profit in it all. And we've forgotten that there is a position beyond war. I think a lot of us have forgotten. Maybe we could remind ourselves and each other that, as we used to say 40 or 50 years ago, war is not healthy for children and other living things. This deliberately naive statement that we make to wake people up, there are no good wars. That could not be happening if we were conscious. And if we knew that consciousness is love, that love is consciousness. And what that all means is that there's just one thing here. There's only one of us here, one thing at work. If the antithesis of love is fear, you would expect someone to come along to use fear, which is ignorance and confusion and a lack of understanding, to promote separation. So it's all a battle between love and fear. We think hatred is the enemy. Fear is the enemy. When you become fearless, you develop your consciousness. You become more loving, loved, and lovable. A word that I don't often use 
that I'll use now is non-duality. This is another way of referring to emptiness, the idea that love as awareness, love as consciousness, is the understanding that there's just one thing at work here. Spirit or an energy that manifests consciousness, manifests as physical form and circumstance and situation. It's the literal reap what you sow. You get what you expect. The world is the way it is because of the way you view it. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It's hard to accept because we don't like, nobody seems to like the world the way it is. And they say, well, this is not the garden I planted. These are not the flowers and the vegetables and the fruits that I wanted to grow in my garden. Who wants this? Well, reap what you sow. And the idea of life as a reflection of what's going on in our heads is not limited to what we want. It's a reflection of who we think we are and our belief in separation and the other. So fundamentally, it's our fear of the other. It's that we don't understand what appears to be other, that we create this whole mess, whether it's war, nuclear weapons, climate change. That's a bad phrase, not climate change. Global warming. We need to use the right words here. It's, climate change is a euphemism. It's designed by Republicans to make it seem, yeah, the climate changes four times a year. No, it's global warming. It's caused by greenhouse gases. It's man-made. And I guess you heard, uh, this is July 31st, right? When we record this, this July, this month we've just completed, is the hottest on record. And that record doesn't just include the 150 years that we've had thermometers. Um, <laughs> there's geological evidence that scientists can figure out how hot it's been across the millennia. So the last time the Earth was this hot seems to have been about 120,000 years ago. And it was followed by an ice age. And, you know, we're not, nobody, no scientist is saying it's always going to be this hot. What will happen is that uh, human beings will begin to die off and maybe even at some point become extinct. And the earth will right itself and maybe there will be another ice age and maybe enough humans will survive that there will be a whole new species of humans. I think there have been nine or ten species of humans, all of which are now extinct. I don't think most people are, are aware of that. We think of some like... Uh, linear unfoldment of you know primate to man and cave man and then modern man no there are 10 I think nine or ten distinct species of humans that have all become extinct except for one and that's the homo sapien some of whom there are some white people Europeans who carry Neanderthal DNA by the way 
I think a lot of them get into politics for some reason, but so there is Neanderthal DNA, but the Neanderthals are extinct, and so too these other humanoid species. So it's possible that the uh, Homo sapien, the humans that are on the planet now, will be replaced by another species, and this may be the true uh, nature of the apocalypse. Not just the end of the world, but the beginning, actually, the beginning of a kingdom of conscious souls. Imagine human beings who are aware of themselves as spiritual beings, as part of a unified whole network. What does a greeting namaste mean? <laughs> it's a beautiful word. It's like aloha. It means, I see God in you. The God in me sees the God in you. The wholeness, the oneness in me recognizes the oneness in you. You and I are spiritually connected. We're different branches of the same tree. We're part of one thing. Namaste. Far out. Now, let's talk to each other like we're different human beings. Separate in form, with our own agenda and our own minds and our own volition. But unified as spirit, unified as energy, unified in the heart as love, so that you can get to the place where you love everybody. You don't have to like them. There's a lot of unlikable people. You don't have to tolerate abuse. If people are abusing you, the fact that you love them doesn't mean you have to stand there and tolerate the abuse. That's what compassion is. Got to do more classes on compassion. Compassion is you love them in spite of their abuse, unlikability, based on recognizing that they are their own worst enemy and as nasty and as mean as they are being to you and as hurtful as they're being to you, they suffer even more as a result. That's my understanding. That, that That's my go-to definition for compassion is looking at a cruel, evil, mean, nasty person and imagining how much they must suffer as a result. Think of times that we behave that way, regrettably, and the suffering that we put ourselves through. And you say, well, that's because I have a conscience. Well, most people do. That's what a psychopath or a sociopath is, a person devoid of a conscience. And it seems to come from severe childhood abuse. That a person would completely lose touch with their inner guidance, with their uh, intuition, their inner tutor. Their intuition, their conscience, and their empathy. Lost. No empathy at all. So when consciousness comes into form, when we incarnate in these separate bodies, we become fearful and ego is manifested to represent that fear. That's what ego is. The quotation in this week's newsletter was by the physicist Max Planck saying, forget exactly how he put it, but one of the uh, primary actions of consciousness when it incarnates into human being is the ego nature. 
Ego is fear-based. Ego is for survival. Ego is the part of you that identifies as separate and alone and alienated. Ego must die in order for there to be love. It's the only way a marriage will work is if you lose the sense of separated self and us and we and our becomes far more important than I, me, mine. Remember counseling a couple when I was in Hawaii who wanted to be married and one of the two had a um, an issue <laughs> that he wanted to ask me about. He said, well, I'm not sure how the separation of powers works. And I said, okay, well, tell me what you mean by separation of power. He said, well, like, what if I want to buy a windsurfing board or um, a mountain bike and my wife doesn't want me to? Like, do I have to do what she says or can I do what I want? And there's that binary either or, right? As if there's no middle ground. And uh, that was his big fear of losing his power in a marriage. That was... That was his hesitancy to committing to the marriage. I will lose my power. You will not lose your power. When you join a team, you don't lose your power, but you do lose the self. You need to lose that illusion, that delusion of individuality, of being separate and unique and, and having to fight with the other parts. Love is the longing of the part to be whole. That's where I'm going to leave it today. I think Plato may have said that, but I haven't been able to trace it to Plato, so I'm not sure where I got that. But it's, it's echoed around in my brain for a long time. Love is the longing of the part to be whole. Love is the longing of the heart to be whole. The longing of the heart to be healed. In many ways, incarnation is the soul being ripped from the bosom of oneness and slammed down into these separated bodies. Why? For the delight of rediscovering, through love, our wholeness. It's all about delight. It's all about joy. It's all about love. And finding that wholeness. Forgiveness, mercy, kindness. Loving kindness, tolerance, patience. And then learning how to do that in a world filled with fear. It's, <laughs> it's a real challenge, isn't it? It's a real challenge. 